welcome ravenous readers and culture consumers to Bohemian Geek Studies. The place where nerdy knights gather together to exercise our telekinetic powers and share our insatiable thirst for intellectual discussions about our favorite books, shows, and movies. My name is Sarah O'Connor, Queen of Queries, Lady of Literature, and Defender of Droids. And I'm Will Lee, Grammarian Inquisitor, Lord Charcuterie, and Keeper of Lengthy Records. And this is Flo, Ambassador from Naboo, Chudley Cannon's aficionado, and Manager of Mischief, and actually wearing my Chudley Cannon's shirt today, just to wrap. Yeah. <laughs> pretty cool. Pretty cool. As usual, as a friendly disclaimer, each episode of BGS is meant to be enjoyed by everyone, but we encourage you to listen to the episode first without your younglings to make sure it's right for your whole family. And last week, we explored together the theme Secret Lessons as we discussed some of the secret truths Miss Jennifer Honey's life had and shared some real life stories from teachers who are keeping our kiddos as intellectually engaged as possible during unprecedented times. This week, I cannot believe we're saying this, but we are finishing up the book to a wonderful conclusion <laughs> where we finally see Matilda use her powers to defeat the dreaded giantess that haunted Crunchum Hall before she and Miss Honey move in together to create a new home as we explore this week's theme, Home at Last. So folks, without further ado, let's get into a quick summary of our very last chapters together before taking a detailed dorky dive more deeply into that delicious text. To kick off our short summary of chapters, we head back to the Wormwood's home and watch Matilda get to work in chapter 19, entitled The Practice. While we still don't know exactly what Matilda plans to do with the three names she learned from her beloved teacher, which to refresh your memory, Magnus, Agatha, and Jenny were the three names, we do watch her swiftly master how to lift and move a cigar with only the power of her eyes. Yes. And then in chapter 20, entitled The Third Miracle, Third Time is the Charm, as we watch Matilda take out the dreaded Miss Trunchbull by pretending to be her brother Magnus's ghost. Although, and Agatha might have intended to menace Miss Honey's classroom as usual. As soon as she starts bullying the class, a piece of chalk ominously lifts up into the air, writing a mysterious message, causing her to faint from fear and flooring her at last. Finally, in chapter 21, everyone seems to be finding a new home in the closing chapter entitled The Same. We learn Miss Trunchbull is gone without a trace, and Mr. Wormwood needs to get out of the country as quickly as possible, his criminal actions finally catching up with him. When Matilda's parents tell her to hurry up and pack because the family is leaving for Spain, Matilda instead rushes to the house that has become her home, imploring her teacher, Miss Honey, to save her like Matilda had saved Miss Honey. Fortunately, the Wormwoods do perhaps the most paternal thing we see them do in this entire book for their daughter and allow her to stay behind with Miss Honey before driving away and, quote, disappearing forever into the distance. And with those excellent summaries in mind, let's explore some of the most pertinent passages in these fantastic chapters. So to kick off chapter 19 entitled The Practice, let's talk about kind of our first topic here. Practice leads to perfect practice, which leads to perfection. So to start our detailed dorky dive into this first chapter, recall that Matilda had just learned some dark secrets about Miss Honey's past. 
So to open up this chapter, Matilda rushes from Miss Honey's house to her own home, brain full of key information that she plans to use to save Miss Honey from Miss Trunchbull's tyranny. Once home and in the privacy of her own room in an empty house, Will, can you read for us that first key quote summarizing what she thinks to herself? Yep, absolutely. And this this is a quote I like just because unlike I think a lot of other kids, Matilda's like, oh, I'm gonna actually go home and practice. Yeah. I mean, I don't I don't know many kids who did that themselves, but Matilda, she's different. She says, now for the practice, she told herself. It's going to be tough, but I'm determined to do it. Her plan for helping Miss Honey was beginning to form beautifully in her mind. She had it now in almost every detail, but in the end, it all depended on her being able to do one very special thing with her eye power. She knew she wouldn't manage it right away, but she felt fairly confident that with a great deal of practice and effort, she would succeed in the end. And so I kind of wanted to start a dialogue here because one of the kind of key phrases that was thrown around with me when I was young and participated in like academic competitions and athletic competitions is this idea that like practice makes perfect. Well, Mm -hmm. no, not really. If you're practicing the wrong thing, you're going to be practicing the wrong skill set. And so I always thought in my mind, perfect practice leads to perfection and sometimes I get kind of like frustrated I know that like in tv shows there's only 20 or 25 minutes to like wrap up a sitcom arc where magical powers just have to be immediately solved but sometimes the trope of being able to like master water bending in one session or master cigar lesson, like lifting in one chapter has always frustrated me as someone who is maybe a weirdo for being willing to like study and practice. And like, I get frustrated because I'm like, I want to be able to do this in a hot beat. Why can't I? So are you you saying that you don't like the training montage? I get frustrated (laughs) with it, right? So like, what do you guys, like, I get the training montage, I get it. But what do (laughs) you guys think, especially since you've got some, you know, airbenders, waterbenders of your own that you're trying to help learn how to master their own skill sets that take a lifetime? So there's a saying in my classroom, and I think I stole this from the PE coach at the previous school I worked. So Coach B, if you're listening to this, I'm pretty sure you taught me this. But we don't say practice makes perfect in my classroom because we don't believe in perfection. Nice. So we say practice makes progress. And we really like that. Oh, I like that. Yes. I like that too. That's worked really well for me and for my students. And I, I think that's what we'll be teaching Charlotte too. So it's just, you just keep working at it and it makes teeny tiny uh-huh. progress and you'll never get to the end of it, but you just keep working every day. So I like that Matilda takes that. I like that a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's the ticket. That's the yeah. that is the ticket because perfection isn't the stopping point. The progress and the journey, right? Absolutely. And I, I'm definitely gonna write that down and use yeah. it. Yeah. Um, I also um, the stuff that you've said in the past, Flo, about the power of the word yet. Yeah. Um, I think is really good. Kind of thinking back to some of like Sarah, you were saying um, stuff that we did as kids. One thing that I remembered when I was playing violin was you couldn't practice at full speed at once, right? You had to work your way up to it. And so technique is a thing um, and, and practicing technique is a thing. And if you uh, and if you try to work on that, I think that's pretty important, too. I love it. 
I love it. I think it's just like really nice to see like a kid as extraordinary as Matilda still have that growth mindset and not be like, mm-hmm. yep, I can move things with my eyeballs. That's it. Done. Like I'm amazing. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It's all part of that journey. And so I guess Flo, what's kind of that quote now that Matilda understands that it's a journey and that she's mastered a key step in what is kind of the final machination that we get to enjoy with her? What does she drop as like the inferior thought? Yeah, I actually think this quote is really funny because it's like, okay, I'll give you the quote first. It says, quote, all she had to do now was put her great plan into action, which is like, yeah, that's the whole thing, Matilda. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> like, yeah, you thought it up, but now you got to do it. So we're going to get to see yeah. her do that in the next chapter. So we're excited. And it also reminds me of performances. They, they, the your teachers will tell you that you got to practice a lot because when it comes time to actually perform, your performance is going to be like eighty five percent of what you do be, of of your best, and so you really have to elevate your level to to actually perform that but of course you know with matilda no spoilers it, it goes off without a hitch but it's, it's good yeah that for sure and so sometimes with these stories we can be particularly harsh on parents who aren't around or guardians who aren't around or step siblings or parents who somehow automatically get lumped into this villain category But here in one of these final chapters, I want to give a quick head nod to Mrs. Wormwood in like this tiny little tinfoil theory, returning to what we talked about before, Matilda's mother is maybe a witch herself, or at least no magic exists. So to this next point, as the adage goes, quote, a mother always knows. So it all goes back to our theme, coming home. Once Mrs. Wormwood arrives home and checks on Matilda, who has been lifting this cigar, which we know is just strenuous mental activity, she she finds her daughter apparently like laying prone on her bed and asks if Matilda is ill. And Flo, like what is uh, still harsh, right? But what what happens here? Yeah, she walks into the room and she says, quote, what's the matter with you? The mother said, waking her up. Are you ill? Oh, gosh, Matilda said, sitting up and looking around. No, I'm all right. I was a bit tired. That's all. And I'm just like so impressed that you want to give her a head nod, Sarah, because I'm like, this is still horrendous parenting. See, and yeah, and that's, I guess that's like every once in a while, Flo, you point out to me like, Sarah, are you just being contrarian? But sometimes in these like- No, you're just being nice. You're trying to find that inkling of of uh, of niceness for- You yeah. find a little gem, a little yeah. gem. I'm just like, well, there isn't a really nasty adjective, so maybe I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. And and so, like, to make me feel better about some of the darker themes of emotional neglect, let's say, let's put kind of a Band-Aid on that and put a personal little headcanon that mom knows what's up because she personally knows how draining magic can be especially for a powerful untrained witch like maybe she used to be and what Matilda apparently seems to be, whether or not you want to call witch or telekinetic, tit for tat, depends on your terminology. And so as a spoiler to the last chapter, 
Mrs. Wormwood had quickly convinced her husband to let Miss Matilda stay behind instead of going with them to Spain. And so my headcanon is Mrs. Wormwood knows I'm not a good mom. He's not a good dad. This is not going to be a good situation for a kid. Maybe regardless of whether or not I want Matilda around, she needs training. And as far as us muggles know, there's no school for witchcraft and wizardry in Spain unless they're, they have like a Wakanda situation and are just staying really darn quiet about it still. So any thoughts on that before we move ahead to the next chapter, guys? I mean, I'm sure we're going to talk about this as we talk about that last mm-hmm. chapter, but I really struggle with Mrs. Wormwood giving up her daughter like that. Like we know it was the best thing for her to do for Matilda, but it still yeah. feels like she didn't really like consider it. Like she was just like, yeah, bye. Right. Okay. See ya. I mean, is it, yep. does she say one less, one less mouth to feed or is that Mr. Wormwood? Or basically. I think Mr. Wormwood says there. that, but yeah. I'm not sure. Why don't yeah. we turn to the text, shall we? Either way, like, it doesn't even matter who says it. That's pretty it's tough. intense to hear from a parent. Or from anybody, for that matter. But. Oh, she yeah, it's Mrs. Wormwood who says it'll be one less to look after. And I can't remember how, I, I can't remember since it's been a while since I've watched the movie, like, read t- two decades. <laughs> I just it. <laughs> so Flo, refresh us to the extent I just remember in the movie I appreciated that papers were signed. Yes. To transfer child cu- or custody parental responsibility stuff. So Flo, since it's more pertinent for you, take it away. Sure. So in the movie, so we watched the movie with my class just before we went out for for COVID break. Oh, okay. But what happens in the movie, Matilda has already photocopied these papers. She keeps them in her backpack at all times. Yeah. Her parents, which is like, she is ready to bounce. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, the Wormwoods drive up to Miss Honey's house. She's hanging out at Miss Honey's. They tell her to get in the car. She begs them not to take her. They say sign the papers. And actually, Miss Wormwood is much more Mm -hmm. um, kind to her daughter in that moment in the movie. She says something along the lines of like, but you are my only daughter. And then she actually looks at Matilda's face and she like asks for the pen. She looks at Matilda's face, says she'll sign it. And then Mr. Wormwood signs it. Wasn't it? Wasn't it like, but you're my only daughter. (laughs) <laughs> exactly in that voice yep mm-hmm. and they actually sign it on matilda's back yes. like, the little tabletop. so cute um yeah and so i think i think because like i know danny devito it, like all of them cared very much for the actress yes. i i think again me trying to like mm-hmm. bolster my mental like this is very painful i like supplant some of that emotional kindness right. from the movie on to this last moment in the book because it happens way too fast yeah the movie is much kinder anyways because like then after that moment we get like this beautiful montage of her and miss honey like rollerblading in the living room and rolling her up in the rug and dancing and it's very very joyful and matilda's quote i mean spoiler her powers don't leave her in the movie yeah so that that makes a big difference too i think yeah, and Davido was a huge fan, right, of of Matilda, and he directed yes. the movie, and so he probably went through some of the same kind of thought process. He was like, he's probably like, I, you know, don't want to portray Mrs. Wormwood in such a terrible light. Yeah. So you're probably right. picking up on some of the same same things. Totally. 
And I also appreciate a director who allows a woman to retain her power from the beginning to an end of the film, especially if it isn't true to an original, like just turning the progressiveness just a little bit Mm -hmm. further up, which feels really, really good, which I think in a way is its own form of miracle, which is a good way for us to transition to our next chapter, chapter 20, the third miracle. So before we get to that pivotal moment where Miss Trunchbull is taken down and out, let's take a quick moment to talk once again quickly about reasonable learning expectations, right? And yeah. good thing Flo is here. So for, <laughs> yeah, so for our first topic, which I'm calling Third Time's a Charm, both in math and magic, Dahl continues to sprinkle in hints tying magic and education or like intellectual discovery together as soon as Miss Trunchbull enters Miss Honey's classroom to grill the students on their math retention. Today, only a week after the two times table is the three times table. Flo, what do you think? I mean... (laughs) You're just like, Flo, go. (laughs) there's There's no other word for this besides ridiculous. Again, like, let's just restate what we've said in the past. There's no reason for kindergartners to be doing any multiplication, specifically not rote multiplication. And it's like, they don't need to know a times table a week. That's just ridiculous. And also, like, to me, it just makes me feel really sad that that's what the administrator wants to test. Like, that's what they're coming in to take a look at. Mm -hmm. And it's like, are the times tables really the only thing that you care about, Ms. Trunchbull? Like, that seems... A, arbitrary, and B, like, really close-minded. Where are you looking at their writing samples? Are you looking at, like, their oral skills, their presentation skills? Like, what about, like, gross motor, fine motor? Anyways, I could go on and on. But it's just crazy. Basically, it's ridiculous. Don't send your kid to Crunchum Hall. Yeah. But this is... Really bad. But this is also Dahl's commentary on British school systems in the 1950s or 60s or earlier, right? He's like... Because that that's what they did. It was like rote memorization all the time. So I mean, I did some no... of that when I was in school. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, that definitely. was like, you, you got to know it. And I mean, this again yeah. gets into that lo- larger conversation, which, which is beyond the scope of this podcast, let alone this episode, teaching to the test and that kind of stuff, which brings us to my next kind of thing that I want to mull over with you guys. You know, Miss Trunchbull demands of a student named Wilfred to recite this three times table backwards. And so again, maybe I'm being too lenient, but let's be a little bit contrarian here. What we could, the little good that we could take away from Miss Trunchbull being utterly unreasonable is arguably the lesson that there's a value to teach to think abstractly. And so I think that that's great. Not necessarily the best way. So like at least played out in this class. So Will, before we kind of dive into this specific instance, let's remind our readers what the actual quote says. Take it away. Sounds good. Really quick. Uh, your comments about six-year-olds and multiplication it's it's funny because like i was a six-year-old doing multiplication tables but that was at home 
and I had like yeah. workbooks and I didn't particularly enjoy it, but I still, it was just like what I had to do. I was actually like, I was going to say something about that. Like, unless it's like student led, yeah, exactly. like if it's coming from you, then like totally fine, whatever you want to do. But coming like top from down, just like, it's, it's like a universal. Yeah. This is what we do. Anyway, totally. sorry. So, so yeah. So, <laughs> so, so Miss Trunchbull marches into the room, right? And asks about the three times tables. And this poor kid, Wilfred says backward, backwards, stammered Wilfred, but I haven't learned it backwards. There you are, cried the Trunchbull, triumphant. She's taught you nothing. Oh, honey, why have you taught them absolutely nothing at all in the last week? That's not true, headmistress, Miss Honey said. They have all learned their three times table, but I see no point in teaching it to them backwards. There's little point in teaching it to them backwards. The whole object in life, headmistress, is to go forwards. I venture to ask whether even you, for example, can spell a simple word like wrong backwards straight away. I very much doubt it. I love that quote that yeah. the whole object in life headmistress is to go forwards. That's so, I love that one. Yep. And see, like, I love it. I truly do love it. But part of me also goes, especially in times right now mm-hmm. when history is incredibly important and past human actions can perhaps give us insights in how we mm. can be going forwards like contrarian let's let's turn things over from different angles yes it is important to move forward as long as you still have that perspective which i think is a little bit of quote unquote looking backwards sure as much as i hate and i'll go as far as to say loathe how miss trunchbull approaches her quote unquote lesson i do appreciate that she is showing the class It's not only important to know how to think about things the first way you're taught, but also a different way. And additionally, though we didn't bother pulling the quoted text from this, she also shows the class multiplication is also a different form of addition and shows them that. And so, yeah, just like Severus Snape, not going to win any teaching awards, but if you are careful students like Hermione and you're willing to buffer out some sharper edges, understanding that this is a book and we can get lessons from it, I do posit that reading it generously, there are some cool ways for us to learn from her about how to learn abstractly. Yeah, I don't... Oh, go ahead, Flo. I mean, I've got a lot to say about teaching abstractly, so you go (laughs) first. (laughs) Well, I was just going to say that you I don't think you have to go too far from what Miss Trunchbull does, which is wrong, right? She shouldn't be just like bullying these students into like reciting time tables backwards. But if you take it in a different light, you could make it into some kind of game. Um, you could yeah. make it into an exercise. There are ways to do what she is maybe kind of trying to do, um, especially like you said, Sarah, with talking about addition um, and kind of showing the students how that's similar to multiplication, but not. And, and she uses a concrete example of apples, oranges, and bananas. There's a way to get there through games, I think. that, And it's not too far a leap. For sure. Yeah, I just think you're being super nice to call this abstract. <laughs> abstract thought teaching. <laughs> I mean, she's basically like, I mean, this is a gotcha moment, right? Like, she's not trying to teach them anything abstract. Yeah, it's a trap. 100%. It's, 100%. It's a trap. Yeah. <laughs> 
she is she is Akbar in this moment. Yeah, I mean, I fully believe in abstract teaching. I believe in project based learning. Exactly what Will is saying. Like, there's a fun way to teach this. You you know, you like set up a store, and the kids like have to buy a certain number of fruit or whatever it is. Like, for mm-hmm. example, next week next week's our last week of class virtually, so I'm supposed to be teaching money. Money is like on the docket, right? It's a lesson. It's a unit that we haven't really been able to get to because obviously we've been virtual and it's been a whole thing. So uh, my colleagues, I'm going to shout them out because not listening to this anyways. They deserve it. Well, no, this is, this is not a positive. (laughs) (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) And they deserve it. (laughs) No, I mean, they're fine and whatever, but like it's cut, whatever you're going to see. They're like assigning the workbook pages in the workbook and doing the lessons that they're supposed to be doing. I, mm-hmm. the crazy teacher, <laughs> I built numerous virtual field trips around the world for my students. And instead of doing the workbook pages, they're going to be going on cultural adventures around the world. I just finished a slide about Kenya. Bravo. And as they finish their trip around the world, they'll then head into the like huge gift store and have a certain amount of money to spend and buy things from the gift store. Kind of tying back to what we were talking before about the difference between rote, rote memorization and and practice. There are ways to practice that yes. are fun, right? There are ways that are pra- to practice that are engaging, that make the kids want to practice. And what you're talking about is one of them. I think that's great. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. I feel so embarrassed and ashamed. Like, it's, ashamed is not the right word. Okay. But I feel embarrassed. I feel embarrassed because yeah, once again, I feel like, up. oh my God, I'm not trying to be contrarian. But are you ready for this truth, guys? So- So back sometime, (laughs) it was either between like first, second or third grade or something. So like a youngster, our teacher had exactly the same kind of lesson Flo was proposing, only she made it a group project. And unfortunately, my group did not do a good job. And call them out. What were their names? I don't even, I don't even remember. I don't even remember because I like, I went to a different school, but I will tell you that (laughs) on the day my group was supposed to present, I was so ashamed of the work. I faked sick for the first and only time. So like, I am not trying to be contrarian. I think that's the coolest lesson ever. There's just like, it's one of those weird things with group projects. If like, okay, I've got stuff to say. I've got so much stuff to say. So yes, agree with you. I see Will is like giving thumbs up. Group projects sucked when we were little. There's a meme that I'm like obsessed with and it says, when I die, invite everyone mm-hmm. I was ever in a group project with to lower me into my grave so they can let me down no, one, one last more time. time. Yes, yes. <laughs> but it's because we were never taught how to work in a group. Yeah. It was never explicitly right. taught. Yeah. And so now something that a lot of teachers are doing, in my class included, is like we specifically teach the kids how to work together. Like, here's how you communicate. Here's some sentence starters for like, yes. hey, here's my idea. What do you think of it? I hear your idea. Let me restate it to you. Here's what I like about it. Here's what I would change about it. Whereas with us, it was like you're thrown into a group with people that you don't know slash don't like. Mm-hmm. And then they're just like, go work on it yep. now. And you're like, all right. No. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the, the 
the, the Slytherin is going to tune out. The Ravenclaw is going to do yeah. this at home by themselves. The Gryffindor is going to just... The Gryffindor is in charge of the you know, Try to run their way through it. The Gryffindor presents yes. exactly. the Ravenclaw yeah. work. And the Hufflepuff yep. is just, like, nice to everyone. But your Hufflepuffs are... Are, are are the people you should rely on but they're usually the people who are just there quietly and unless you unless you try to work with them and they're busy sipping tea watching everyone else combust with one another yeah, yeah they're like i'm yeah. not dealing with you right now so anyways i'm with you sarah my students will be doing this independently so they don't have to worry right. about it <laughs> really really nice and and i will say one other one other game i really enjoyed as a kid that helped promote math was challenge 24 cards that's kind of an i would i i think maybe I've never heard of oh flow check them out they're great and like I, I will gladly get a set for char and charlie they're a boss and like you know dust off shoulder i was once upon a time a little challenge 24 champion mm-hmm. but oh, you know that's how we roll does it look like a wheel yeah it has four numbers pretty yeah. much like this isn't an ad for Challenge 24, folks. We were not sponsored here. But if here. you want to sponsor us, Challenge 24, right. card, <laughs> hit us up at bohemiageekstudies at gmail.com. And so pretty much this game like teaches kids how to think constructively and abstractly to solve for 24. You get four numbers, add, subtract, multiply, divide. And it's, I think they've even started adding in like root mm. stuff and like fancy schmancy kind of math for like upper level stuff but that was over my head and over my pay grade all all i did was the normal stuff and then there's also where you have to solve for a single number that answers it for two cards so yeah if you're looking to inspire math in your kids and making it fun I would say that that is good to go because there's three levels of hardness on the cards and you can easily see it by the color of dots. And you can buy it at Target. So Target, hit us up. Vocab moment for you guys. There you go. So I think, let's see, this is a good place for us to maybe revisit that delicious tinfoil theory of Hogwarts as a feeder school. Flo, do you want to start us off? I do. So open up this chapter, um, Miss Honey checks in with her students who were physically harmed uh, by Miss Trunchbull's last visit. And she tells everyone to be, quote, especially careful and clever today. Careful first, not just clever. Be rude. I know. Everybody. It's right. intense. Clever is just going to get them get them into trouble right. alone, right? So Especially Nigel. Yeah, especially oh, Nigel. Nigel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Every time I hear Nigel, I immediately think Thornberry. Thornberry. <laughs> Yes. Yep. But we've also got uh, Eric Inc., whose name I still always love. And we talked to, about him in a previous episode, Launch the Newt, uh, on April 27th. And he reports back to Miss Honey that his mom thinks his ears are definitely bigger. And so who knows? We'll look forward to finding out which Hogwarts house he gets slated, uh, sorted into, uh, maybe in some fan fiction. Yeah, get that kid to Madame Pomfrey's stat. Like his yep. poor little mm-hmm. ears. And his classmate, Rupert, unconfirmed, last name Grant, a.k.a. my husband in the past, (laughs) Uh, he needs to go with him to Madame Pomfrey's to double check his head, make sure there wasn't permanent damage caused to his dear, sweet, sore scalp from Miss uh, Trenchbull just holding him by the hair. And then our feisty, line-hearted Nigel, who is apparently spokesperson for everyone at Crunchum Hall, because he is not shy at all about declaring in front of the class right before Trunchbull enters that he hates her 
and wishes he was a grown-up so that he could <laughs> knock her flat. And even though I'm a contrarian, Nigel, fist bump my guy. Fist bump. I just imagine him like those like old timey boxes, like why come up. Um, Dahl gives his readers the teensiest bit of cliffhangers at the end when Miss Honey calmly tells him that I doubt you would. No one has ever got the better of her yet. Yet being the opportune word. That's right. Yes. Yes. Growth mindset. It's a power of yet, 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 yet. Sesame Street. Check it out. Which brings us to our next favorite tinfoil theory question, which we can finally deliciously ask which Hogwarts house, because undeniably, right, our girl is going to Hogwarts, is Matilda in? And so some folks call Matilda's power telekinesis, and maybe, sure, it's just that. But I posit she's got an insane, insane handle on wandless magic because we see her bring Miss Trunchbull down by writing the following ominous note on Miss Honey's chalkboard. So before we slate Matilda into the house just to give a teensy tiny little bit of cliffhanger, let's look at her last bit of stellar magic we see in the book. Will... Because I know you have a very <laughs> threatening, ominous voice. Can you take it away for us on behalf of Matilda? Sure. And I, I like how you've put this here because it maybe puts your thumb on the scale a little bit about which house she's in. So, yeah, I'll give it my best shot here. Yeah, not like I'm trying to, like, be biased at all. <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah, right. <laughs> Agatha. this is magnus this is magnus it is magnus and you better believe it i love how she's got to say it so many times like the chapters Uh the third miracle she's writing it like three times she's like yeah okay yeah it is magnus believe me and I always thought it was cool because this is appearing in, in it's it's illustrated, right? right. It's like the chalkboard is actually illustrated, which is cool. All right, keep going because so now you've, going. you've left okay. us on a cliffhanger. Sorry. No, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> Agatha, give, give my Jenny back her house. Give my Jenny her wages. Give my Jenny the house, then get out of here. If you don't, I will come and get you. I will come and get you like you got me. <laughs> I am watching you, Agatha. I legitimately have goosebumps. I legitimately have goosebumps. <laughs> it was like not the creepy voice I was expecting. And so I was yes. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know. And I was expecting like, I will come and get you like you. But yeah. you're like serial killer i don't know what's going on yeah it's it's the quiet i'm telling you it's it's the the quiet ones it's Mm -hmm. the quiet ones you gotta look out (laughs) oh man and so at that ominous last agatha the chalk stops writing it hovers for a few moments then suddenly drops to the floor with a tinkle and breaks in two with giantess agatha to follow its path immediately thereafter by fainting and not returning to consciousness then and there and like again shouts contrarian the matron the like nurse of the school is the only one at the school who apparently cares about making sure that aggie gets like the health care that she needs because water is thrown on her and i can just like imagine since clearly 
pretty much all of the other teachers, if not every single one of them, does not like the headmistress. I can just imagine like Professor Flitwick pulling a Severus Snape and like lifting her up magically and allowing her to just like bump off of everything possible as she like floats down to get treatment at the medical bay. <laughs> a Malfoy ferret situation, just bouncing. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. I do want to just do like a quick movie comparison real quickly. Please. A movie mm-hmm. shows this very differently after yeah. Matilda. Well, first of all, when Matilda is writing, the kids are all reciting it, um, reading it out loud as a ghost. So it's yes. not quite so creepy as just seeing it in writing. And like, I'm imagining like the class just silent watching this. Whereas in the movie, it's like yeah. this, you know, they're all in unison reciting it, which is like less creepy because it's a bunch of six year olds. Mm-hmm. adorable voices so cute but yeah. after that happens there's like a whole slew of things like miss trunchbull gets on this like fat globe and matilda mm-hmm. spins her around and all these yeah. shades are moving and the like drawn on people that miss honey had hidden are like attacking her it's like craziness until finally she falls but like the trunchbull doesn't just pass out she's like fighting back for a long time it's a super mm-hmm. long scene so I, I like comparing and contrasting the two because they're both so great in their own rights. Like the movie is kind of crazy and funny and wild. And then the book is like super creepy. Yeah. In Will's voice. <laughs> Especially my serial killer voice. Uh, yeah. And so thank you very much for that comparison and contrast because as like a spoiler alert to our audience, we're probably not going to be doing a one-off episode of Matilda the movie unless and until will can you can you remind us all actually there's some news about some upcoming Matilda that may have us revisit not the text but the movie in comparison to something new before before we get into that delicious question that we started out with yeah absolutely and this actually this was news that came out in the past few weeks so during the during the lockdown. So I don't know exactly how it's going to work out, but mm-hmm. there is now casting for a Matilda the musical movie. And they have announced the first actor that I know of to be cast, and they cast Miss Trunchbull. Interestingly, kind of like we talked about before, they cast a man, as they always do, and they cast Ray Fiennes, um, our, our friend Moldy Voldy. Mm, uh, yeah. so that will be super interesting to see what his take on the character will be. It'll yeah, it'll be an interesting level of creepy with like that, right? Go ahead, mm-hmm. go ahead, Flo. I could see you wanted to say something. I mean, I'm like obviously really excited about this, and I hope that they obviously include the music from the musical because the music is outstanding. But I just, ugh, I can't with. That I know. <laughs> the, yeah. I know. It's yeah. just like it's irresponsible to change the book that much. <laughs> like, like the beginning of Half Blood Prince. Movie. Yeah. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> uh-huh. It's bibliophilically, which is not a word, it negligent. Is. That's it is well, neglect of this text. <laughs> it just doesn't, it's just hard to understand, right? It's like some sometimes adaptations you understand. It's like, oh, I see why you did that. This translates better to the movie. I like that change. And then there are other places where it's like, you changed it, but why? I mean, yeah, to me, yeah. there was no reason to change anything in this book so to completely change the plot is like don't call it matilda call it something else i don't understand yeah call it miranda i don't care (laughs) it's not matilda but anyways i'm excited to to see it and to um 
yeah, give my thoughts after. So hopefully we get that soon. And hopefully COVID hasn't completely slowed it down too much. But Mm -hmm. we'll have to see. Yeah. And so to get us to that delicious question, and since we were talking about the Mm -hmm. movie, in fact, um, actually, almost 20 years after the release of the movie, Matilda, Matilda's star, Mara Wilson, actually took to Twitter to lay out her thoughts on what we're going to be probing together, i.e. what house, Hogwarts house, would Matilda have been in? And... Mara thought that Matilda would be split between Gryffindor and Ravenclaw, but would ultimately go Gryffindor. And she also commented, which I appreciated, that um, she thinks she would have attended school at the same time as our favorite magical trio, duh, Harry, Ron, Hermione, stating that, quote, I imagine Matilda would, as a seventh year, see second year Harry, Ron, and Hermione in the restricted section and smile to herself, which I love. That's like, regardless of what house we slate, that's like tinfoil head cannon to me. Yeah, but it's also like, how is Matilda not helping solve the basilisk issue? True. (laughs) True, yeah. Which, which flow, let me just say, maybe goes to support my theory, which I'll, I'll say after, why don't you flow, maybe take it away. If, if you were the sorting hat, where would you, where would you expect okay, Matilda so to go? so I'm not going to play by the rules here, <laughs> but okay. So <laughs> I agree with Mara that uh, she would probably be split between Gryffindor and Ravenclaw. I also believe mm-hmm. that she would go to Gryffindor eventually. Um, maybe being a hat stall, which for those of you who don't know, is having to sit there longer than five minutes. I think she'd be okay in Gryffindor. She would probably like make friends really easily because we've seen that happen. However, I believe, and this is maybe a hot take because you may not have thought of it. I believe that Matilda does not matriculate from Hogwarts. I believe she transfers to Wagadu, where they specialize in wandless magic. Hmm. Yes. That's it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, free at no, last. That's okay. <laughs> I mean, I'll still say mine, but like, like it. let me let me just say my answer will now end with Flo's conclusion. I mean, it <laughs> just makes sense. I'm convinced like, on that. We don't really know yes. where Wagadu yes. is. Just for those of you who don't know, that is the African Wizarding School. We're not exactly right. sure where in Africa, but most likely in Western Uganda. Um, mountains of the moon area um they like i said specialize in wandless magic matilda obviously shows great prowess in this like it just makes sense that she would transfer there and like really hone those skills so and you know miss honey would be gunning for a unique position like you know like miss honey is going to bat for her special powerful Wait, I, mean, I don't know like how transfers work in the wizarding world but i feel like it shouldn't be that hard like anybody who sees Matilda doing wandless magic would be like, yeah, we want you. Mm-hmm. It just makes yeah. sense. Yeah, so you're I'm thinking good. she probably transfers around like year four. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, Feels right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's another, <laughs> that's another whole thing, right? It's like, how do, what is the transfer system in, in, in the wizarding world? Is there, I mean, it, there, there should be, right? If, if these schools are interested in improving the experience of students, getting them or diversity viewpoints and all that other good stuff. But I don't know. It would have been nice if JK had written some of that in as opposed Maybe to just Maybe we'll get it in Fantastic Beasts. I'm excited. That would be that nice. That would be so Maybe. nice. I need some more <laughs> Elver Morning in my life. 
anyways, that's it. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh-huh. Will, your turn. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's funny. I had always thought about uh, Matilda in terms of sitting on a pile of books, as you see on the cover of the book, reading a book, and she's obviously Ravenclaw, right? Yeah. Uh, at the yeah. beginning of all of this, though, uh, Sarah, you're, you're kind of walking me through the four houses and what Matilda might be. Um, you laid out a really convincing uh, theory, so I don't want to take yours, but I'm, I'm ki- I've kind of signed on to your, your theory, so why don't you take it yeah why don't why don't i then lay mine out and then you can kind of dissect it and then flow since you disagree to the point we like should kind of pick that apart to the point that i make her leave the school (laughs) (laughs) well no i love i love your conclusion so so even even though i would maybe say so i originally like most of us who grew up looking at the fearsome trio thinking Mm -hmm. you have to be raw raw gryffindor right like i want to be the hero i originally would have put her into gryffindor because hey how many pages does like house ravenclaw get to like learn about frankly Mm -hmm. how how much do we get to learn about hufflepuff in the books and like all this is coming from three ravenclaws so yeah and like slytherin i i have some great slytherin friends who i think would have some things to say if all we take away from slytherin is equal evil Mm -hmm. so though i originally would give deference to the woman who played matilda i posit that matilda is slytherin and she could have maybe hat stalled between Slytherin and Ravenclaw, but I really think it frankly would have, could have been an easy, quick decision, frankly, for the hat to go, yes, my girl, you are in Slytherin. So why? She's got phenomenal powers, mm-hmm. but she's not show offy. Never, ever, ever. She chooses a super small group of people to to take care of and to be cared of. Um, she plots and schemes like a lot before acting, which which you know hard hard for maybe Colleen McMillan, who who I love as a Gryffindor and who leans second for Ravenclaw for our Clone Wars listeners. But like Matilda doesn't burst onto the action like Nigel does in a headstrong fashion. And, you know, nods to our Slytherin crew because they get it done and can do so in, frankly, the most vicious and permanent ways and sometimes may lean a little bit towards the revenge side of justice. And we've seen time and time again with Matilda, chemical warfare isn't off the table, using animals for particular machinations like hat tip to Nagini, perhaps, is not off the table. Psychological torture is not off the table. And again, like Slytherins, I love you. I have tested as a Slytherin. So this is not to knock Slytherin here, but Matilda shines on some of the most coveted aspects of Slytherin she just needs a Miss Honey to help show her some TLC and temperance before things get out of control (laughs) and before she transfers to to a new country to finish her studies because I totally agree that while my girl is wearing that silver and green her wandless magic is where she's going to shine period 
So, so Will, now that we kind of understand where where the lady cause are at, what what are you thinking? Well, what I what I really like is the fact that over the past few years, and I don't know if there's anything in particular that started it, is that we have really looked at the four houses at Hogwarts and been like, we can't, like you said, we can't just make Slytherin evil, right? right. No matter how J.K. wrote it in terms of like putting Pansy Parkinson um, in the house and Pansy being like this kind of amalgamation of people from her life that she didn't like uh, or from her youth that she didn't like, we've kind of rehabilitated uh, we've rehabilitated Slytherin to some extent um, to look at the finer points of people who are sorted into House Slytherin. The the cunning, the um, sometimes the, the the that ability to to go it alone and and get stuff done. And I kind of like the theory that Matilda would be sorted into Slytherin because, like you said, she she comes up with these plans that sometimes have these crazy permanent effects. Yeah. Um, you know, we've, we, we look at her, uh, we look at the third miracle in particular and we think, okay, so she didn't do something that would have gotten the authorities onto Miss Trunchbull, right? She didn't, um, it's, it's not like she, she, it wasn't like law and order mm -hmm. Matilda where she gets Agatha Trunchbull caught. She, she does something where she, does it directly. It's like direct action in its purest form possible, even though Miss Trunchbull is going to be permanently scarred and is going to flee into the night. Yep. Um, and so that kind of cunning is very Slytherin-y. So I kind of like it. I think Severus Snape would have been delighted to have a wandless witch to which he could provide tutelage because not enough of wandless magic that Snape, however you see him, that is something that he does that pretty much no one else in the book series to my recollection really is able to do. Sure. And so whether or not you want Miss Trunchbull out of the administration or whether or not you want Snape out of that administration, Let's turn to our final chapter, chapter 21, a new home to get that first point across new administration. Who dis? Yeah, so before we get to that tinfoil theory, let's talk about the opening of this chapter where we see second-in-command mm -hmm. Mr. Trilby, who we've never heard of before now, the deputy head, which I assume is like the vice principal, right? I think it's like Professor McGonagall to Albus Dumbledore. I think so, right? And and one other little sh shout-out um, to Flo's headcanon theory between hat-stalling between Ravenclaw and Gryffindor. If Flo's headcanon is correct, she would be following in Professor McGonagall's footsteps. Mm -hmm. and, and and almost Hermione, right? That's right. That's right. And Neville, Neville. Precious. Yes, almost Hermione and Neville, right. also a hat stall right. between Hufflepuff and uh, Gryffindor, I believe. So, yeah, there you go. So they're looking for Mr. Trilby. They're trying to track yeah. down um, where Miss Trunchbull has gone. Yeah. Can't find her. 
and uh, poor Mr. Trilby. Although, <laughs> I mean, you can only imagine what he thought he was going to discover, right? Because Miss Trunchwell doesn't show up to school one day. And um, her her other qualities aside, right. it does seem like attendance mm-hmm. she was pretty good at. Totally. So he, he goes and he calls um, and visits her home. And Total. basically everything is still there except she's taken her clothes, she's taken her shoes, and she's uh, she's just disappeared. And he says, she's done a bunk. Mr. Trilby said, said to himself, and he went away to inform the school governors that the headmistress had apparently vanished. And as we like to do, compare and contrast this private celebration in Matilda with a more public one when in Harry Potter, spoiler, Severus Snape flies out of the Great Hall like a bat in Deathly Hallows, and Rowling writes, quote, he has, to use the common phrase, done a bunk replied Professor McGonagall, and a great cheer erupted from the Gryffindors, Hufflepuffs, and Ravenclaws, and in, like, online stuff, some Slytherins made it back with Slughorn. <laughs> but, <laughs> right. but, sorry, sorry for that, uh, Slytherins, again, you didn't completely go a bunk for the entire war against Voldemort, so let's have a vocab moment to talk about this precious phrase, done a bunk, and the fancy word anglophenia if i'm pronouncing it correct yeah and this is this is another one of those great british uh phrases and this is a this is a great quote i really like this kind of description of 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 done a bunk so bunk is a verb from the 19th century and it means to leave the problem is that it doesn't sound like a verb on its own right you think about bunks like bunk beds it just sounds like a noun and the action that it describes uh has a greater range of motion than this mm-hmm. one brutal word can enca- encapsulate so it doesn't tend to be used just just like that so what the british usually do is add extra words extra sense to give it a bit more uh, heft uh to root it in that situation rather than just uh leave it to illustrate some carefree escape our source says so which is a hilarious phrase provided by a UK publication, yeah, yeah, right? Like, yeah. I love, yeah. I love listening to British people describe, like adding in a few adjectives to, yeah. the, like, yes, that's what adjectives yeah. are. <laughs> yeah. So, and so now the word is almost exclusively used to mean to leave a situation illicitly. So, schoolboys who don't want to go to their lessons will happily bunk off, uh, which means to be truant. Uh, landlords living in mortal fear of their tenants doing a bunk and skipping out their rent in the middle of the night so it, it is a very pleasing word it, it's it, it's it's a fun phrase yeah for sure and for those of you who were wondering where we got this information that we kind of directly quoted it's found in an article quote Fraser's phrases done a bunk in the anglophenia section of bbc america which technically gives us one teensy extra vocab boost because Flo, what does Anglophenia even mean? Uh, honestly, I'd never heard of this before, and I just looked it up. <laughs> but it says Anglophenia from BBC America is a celebration of all things British from news and culture, Doctor Who, and Downton Abbey. So I know that an Anglophile is somebody who admires England and its people and its culture, and I've always heard of Anglophilia, but not Anglophenia, so interesting yeah so there you go the the more you know that's right so now that we've delighted in our like 
hold back the sobs last vocab moments of Matilda Flo, what, well, what do you both think of this last little passage? Quote, back at school, great changes were taking place. As soon as it became clear that Miss Trunchbull had completely disappeared from the scene, the excellent Mr. Tilby was appointed head teacher in her place. And very soon after that, Matilda was moved up into the top form, where Miss Plimsoul quickly discovered that this amazing child was every bit as bright as Miss Honey had said. So can you kind of like delight or alarm us with the reality of school admin changes? Because yes, this is a book. And again, like to kind of harken back to the like montage scene, sometimes I get frustrated with like, how realistic Mm -hmm. is this portrayal? Uh, Well, admin changes happen all the time. I've been teaching for nine years. I have worked under, let's see, one, two, three, four, five different admins, um, specifically heads of schools and heads of lower school. Uh, Some are great. Some are not so great. Doesn't matter because I'm not working there anymore. My current head situation (laughs) is great. So that's wonderful. It is really nice that the head teacher in this case Mr. Trilby people seem to really like he was probably a teacher Mm -hmm. before and not just like a career admin which is something that teachers really hate when you've got to work under a career admin um because they don't really know what's going on in the classroom or care that much so I've worked under those before the difference that a good admin can make I, I mean you can't even like quantify it because it's mm-hmm. everything like right now, my current administration is wonderful. They take everything very seriously. They're open to talking to us. They want to hear the good, the bad, the ugly, um, which is lovely. Administrations I've worked under in the past have been very um, judgmental, <laughs> uh, not open to listening to any sort of criticism or open to new ideas or new ways of teaching, which is, of course, really hard and stifles teachers. Now, okay, so the issue here that I have is break it down for us like COVID gloves are off you could you could like hear the tonal shift right folks (laughs) okay so I really struggle with Matilda's grade level jump that's what I wanted Mm. to ask you about right like as a teacher this seems like we know Matilda's got it going on but like from the like literally as the lyrics go started from the bottom now the top yeah started from the bottom now we hear yeah, this this would not happen. Like, this is not realistic. No matter how gifted you are, you don't go from kinder to six. Yeah. That, that's just not okay. The issue here being, like, not that Matilda should have been in kindergarten or was being challenged in kindergarten. She definitely wasn't. That's, like, we all agree on that. Yeah. However, social, emotionally, ding, ding, she ding. was a kindergartner. Like, she is still six. She ne- does not need to be with the 12 year olds discussing 12 year old things. It's just, it's not appropriate. It's not, it's not age appropriate. It's not good for her development. It's really just not a good period. So what needed to happen was some sort of independent study program while she's in the kinder class or some sort of differentiated curriculum to move her forward in the kinder class. May, like the furthest I would have pushed up would have been maybe second grade. But realistically, like, she just needed a different program. Like, yeah. she shouldn't have been at Crunchum. She should have been in a school for gifted and talented kids, mm-hmm. which is a separate – like, I've worked at a school like that. It's very, very different. It's much more personalized. I had horrible admins there. Yay. Spoiler. But <laughs> but I worked really hard for those kids, and those kids did get what they needed 
while still remaining age appropriate. I, it's just it's hard to imagine a six year old with the sixth graders like that's. And I I don't want to get too into the weeds on this flow because this is sure. already going to be a longer delicious episode. But like, correct me if I'm wrong. Again, getting into a gifted school, the onerous is really on the parents to make sure that their kids' needs are being served. Like Matilda, as clever as she is, and even though she's got Mrs. Phelps in her back corner, this isn't something that Matilda can advocate for herself. And we we know the sad the sad fact of the matter is there are real wormwoods out there sure. who don't even get their kids into the right grade as we saw Matilda go through. So sure. and mm-hmm. any kind of silver lining or just making it darker than I've already brought the move down. <laughs> okay, so here's here's the things I don't want to like speak for all gifted and talented programs. My school, like when I was a kid, did not have a GNT program. What does that mean? Gifted and talented. Okay. And I had never even heard the term until I read The Princess Diaries, hmm. which is a great book. And Mia Thermopolis, The Princess of Genovia, is in Gifted and Talented. See, and I read that and I even forgot. So like, again, people. There you go. I got you. Learning is progress, right? It's all a journey. <laughs> That's right. So, okay. So I struggle with Gifted and Talented programs because they really segregate the kids out. It's a form of tracking, which some people are pro, some people are against. I don't really go either way. I think there's positives and negatives. However, my big thing is that the test to be to go into gifted and talented programs, specifically on the East Coast where I worked, and to go to a gifted and talented school, is called the WIPSI. Mm-hmm. And the WIPSI is not free. Mm. So you have to pay to get a WIPSI done. And that in itself is a barrier to entry, which is not acceptable. Here in California, in public schools, I believe there is a gifted and talented test giving in second grade. However, I've never worked in public schools here in California since I went to public schools in California. So I don't know if that's still being done, but there's just no point. There's no point to it. Just differentiate within the classroom. Do what you can. Do what you can at home. Miss Honey should be able to differentiate for Matilda at home. Yeah. And I'm a little bit confused as to why she felt like she had to move Matilda up that high. Just give her some yeah. independent tasks at home. I, I don't know about you guys, but I had been individually assessed one of the times I moved schools. Mm-hmm. And it was right before seventh grade. And it was a very jarring process. And apparently I didn't pass it. And wasn't not only put into like, I can't even remember if it was three levels, but not only was I tested for the top level, they accidentally put me in the bottom most level as a new kid. Then I was in the lowest reading class for a few weeks and was experiencing exactly what Matilda experienced. Fortunately, I had a good teacher who was advocating for me. But it came down to me, a seventh grader, as a new student, having to make the decision of, well, Sarah, you're more advanced than the reading class that you're in. Do you want to stay with the few friends you've been Mm -hmm. able to curate? Mm -hmm. Or do you want to jump back into the gifted program that you were supposed to be in? And like a Ravenclaw, I sacrificed some of those friendships and that social development to get me into the reading class. And so that was very socially 
jarring for me. So like if any of you have experienced that or if you experience the disappointment of not getting into the school, the program, the blah, 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 like empathy is here. I literally personally feel you on that. So I don't think I was ever tested for gifted and talented. I've got no recollection of that. I was put into like a one-on-one class with a nun in kindergarten at my Christian Whoa. school that I was going to. So Whoa, all right. I, I, mean, I don't really know what that was about because I was like four and a half. I don't know. Um, yeah. but I remember like being pulled out of class, having to go read one-on-one during reading time. Mm-hmm. But I, again, I don't think that was any sort of like gifted and talented official testing. Mm-hmm. And then in second grade, it was offered to me to skip third grade. Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't offered to me. Nothing was offered to me. I was, <laughs> exactly. and that's the point, right? That's the right. Point. It was offered to my parents that I skip third yeah. grade, but my parents actually turned it down because they felt like my math skills were just borderline and they didn't want me mm. to fall behind. So I continued through with the rest of my peers. Mm-hmm. We did have one kid who did skip that grade. It was the two of us who were offered it and he did skip it. And I'm sure he's doing fine, but I remember it was quite jarring for him to have to yep. skip that and have to leave yeah, his sure. friends. So. Yep. Yeah. I mean, for Matilda, like you just started school, you've got like three friends. Yep. And now you're gone. And now you're with the 12 year olds and they like mm-hmm. have BO and you just like want to die. So come on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like cooties is the most yeah. pressing quiz of the day every I mean, day. They're probably like doing mash and she's just like, I don't know. Right. I've right. never seen <laughs> anyone. <laughs> yep. Any anything further on that point, Will, before we get to our next one of this chapter? Um, the only thing that I can that that I wanted to add is so yeah, we we had we had something called tag in Connecticut, talented and gifted, right? And I, I think I tested in like third or fourth grade um and, and got into it. But the the idea of tracking, um I Oh, I, I think I got into it like NBT, what else? What else? Yeah, whatever. You've been tagged, bitch. Basically. <laughs> You're gonna have to cut that out. <laughs> We're getting there. After Matilda, we're turning oh, it up. Yeah. That felt yeah, so exactly. good. <laughs> Just a little hint. Yep. Uh, what was I? Oh, yeah, that's right. So I've heard this from Camille, my wife, um, and, I, and I like the theory. And, and I'm, it, it might be a wider theory, too, which is that basically the tracking that our school systems has have done is is basically just feeding into our political schisms, right? The fact right. that we separate kids from a young age into like two different tracks where they never meet, they never talk to one another is an easy way to see how that feeds into political divides. I kind of like it. And it's so easy to point fingers at one another and feel yeah. jealousy. 100%. Exactly. And it's not just political, it's racial too in a lot of places. 100%. Yes. million percent. Mm-hmm. The, the issue comes with a school like mine currently. So I, I actually just had a discussion about tracking with some parents because mm. coming off of this coronavirus distance learning, parents are concerned that their kids are going to be behind. Mm-hmm. And right. there's concerns that we won't be able to fill in the gaps, quote unquote, as we've been able to in the past. And we're hoping to have smaller classes next year to help address those issues. But like, let's be clear, it is easier for a teacher to address things when the students are all similar in ability. So yep. when all of our students are pretty much the same socioeconomic status, a large number of them are white. So, I mean, there's not too much, you know, racial divide in that. Why not put all the kids who are high achieving together, get them further and then fill in the gaps for the other kids. It's just, it makes more sense when you've got nine kids in a classroom, we're told to teach to the middle. Mm-hmm. So yep. when the middle is one kid, you're leaving eight kids behind. Yep. 
so I don't know. It, it's a tough one. It's a tough situation. And coronavirus is just kind of exacerbating those things because a lot of kids d- couldn't have access to distance learning during this time. Not yeah. in my yeah, totally. situation, but across the country. And but, so yeah. there is going to be a huge gap to fill to make up for these couple months of school that they've lost. Yep. So I think this is a good part as we're kind of mulling over how do we deal with the difference in kind of innate abilities, social, intellectual, et cetera, of school age kids. Here we now go into perhaps my biggest conspiracy tinfoil theory yet. And it is that Miss Honey and Crunchum Hall have maybe placed a magic dampener on their prodigious, talented, too young for Hogwarts, as Flo herself mentioned, good reasons why, too young for Hogwarts student Matilda. So like walk with me, talk with me as we explore together in this headspace, this telling quote, quote, one evening, a few weeks later, Matilda was having tea with Miss Honey in the kitchen of the Red House after school as they always did. When Matilda said suddenly, something strange has happened to me, Miss Honey. Tell me about it, Miss Honey said. This morning, Matilda said, just for fun. Narrator, you know, here Professor Slughorn saying like, all theoretical, of course. Of course, Tom, all theoretical. Matilda goes on, I tried to push something over with my eyes and I couldn't do it. Nothing moved. I didn't feel the hotness building up behind my eyeballs. The power I had is gone. I think I've lost it completely. And Miss Honey gives her this explanation in the privacy of their own home about how now Matilda is in the right classroom, competing with children at her right level, and that her brain, quote, for the first time, having to struggle and strive to keep busy, which is really great. And so, you know... That's only a theory, she goes on to say, mind you. It may be a silly one. Yeah, Miss Honey, it is. But I don't think it's that far (laughs) off the mark, she says to Matilda. And so Matilda says that she's glad that that's, that like losing these powers has happened to her because she doesn't want to go through life as a miracle worker. But I respectfully call a little bit of BS on this situation a Especially since Miss Honey says that Matilda has done enough for her personally, which makes me feel more kinship than ever with Flo's hot take of Miss Honey. You know, how dare, in in my contrarian fashion, revisiting my perspective as a kid, how dare one of my favorite childhood literacy characters not tell Matilda that there's a world of peers out there, i.e. Hogwarts, extended schools, that if she only taps the right brick or runs through the right correct train platform, she could break through to her true peers. So what do you think of my, like, head headcanon that like Matilda's powers are just too much and perhaps there's been some adult intervention to dampen and again this is this is all theoretical of course this is beyond what doll was considering you want to go or should I I don't know I don't know <laughs> the only the, my, my thought that is, is I, I think you're at least onto something kind of interesting because you've hit on a trope right which is the trope is that whether you see it in 
uh, Matilda with Matilda, or if you see it in like Stranger Things with Eleven, or if you mm-hmm. see it in X Men with Jean Grey, there is a pretty yes. y- there's a pretty traceable uh, trope in fiction to not let women get too powerful. Yep, and you could easily kind of see that kind of bleeding into this too. Yep. So. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if that necessarily lends more support for the tinfoil hat theory, but it, it, it's just interesting that this is nothing. This is nothing new here. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I like I like the Jean Grey because I think that's even more apt than Magneto, because at least Magneto, when his powers are dampened or controlled mm-hmm. or like what have you, he's aware of it. Right. And I guess, yeah, and it's a little better than Jean Grey, right? Because the whole the whole problem with Professor X kind of tamping down Jean Grey's abilities and her and her memories, for that matter. I, 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 don't, I forget if there have been so many iterations of the Dark Phoenix story that I don't recall which is which from the comics to the movies to the other movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but she is the stuff is done to Jean Grey against her will right yeah uh so that makes it much more nefarious than what this is which is that it seems like matilda's competing on a different on another level but what you're talking about with the with the idea of a magic dampener is inching more towards that more nefarious line yeah anything bad flow yeah so (laughs) you're gonna laugh but i actually went back to the (laughs) musical for this yes (laughs) Back to a source. You know how we like quoting those sources. (laughs) So I I was just a little bit taken aback by Matilda saying that she wouldn't want to go through life as a miracle worker. And then that that word miracle kind of just popped up in my head randomly. And I was just Googling while you guys were talking. But the opening song to the Matilda musical is called Miracle. And it's about how every parent thinks that their child is a miracle Mm -hmm. and then it goes through it except for the wormwoods the wormwoods have never once thought that matilda was a miracle they thought she was you know (laughs) i'm just gonna get some tissues i know a pus-filled pustule or whatever they thought she was and so i i just find it really sad that like matilda had this one thing she was a miracle in this one regard obviously she was a miracle regardless of her abilities but in the way that she was being treated, she was a miracle worker in this one thing. And to like have that stripped away from her, yeah, it's hard to imagine that she would feel glad about that. It's almost like she's saying it to like kind of appease Miss Honey, like ding ding ding. Oh yeah, like now I'm like normal, and like now we can be normal, and you can have like the normal thing that you wanted. But like I, I can't imagine that would feel good, especially when you've never been you know, thought of as anything but lowly. Yes. So I, I struggled with that. And Miracle is a great song. Again, the M- Matilda musical songs are great. Highly encourage you to go buy the soundtrack. <laughs> and so I think that's a really good point for us to actually move into their new home. So let's move into that red house and discuss the setting of where this quote, takes place, Miss Honey's home, which she has finally been able to return to because following Trunchbull's disappearance, Miss Honey's father's will, which left the family home to Jenny and not Agatha, was quote unquote, discovered again. Yeah, okay, discovered. Uh Yeah. And so for what it's worth, I know Doll is discovering the house as red in color, 
But with Matilda soon to now be living there and with the occupant's shared love of books, which we all share with Doll, I frankly read and consider their home to be the Red R-E-A-D house. So when Matilda returns from her daily evenings with Miss Honey to her home one day, she sees her parents, like after how many countless pages of them being absent, frantically packing for Spain, because apparently Mr. Wormwood's criminal activities of chop shopping stolen cards from all over the country has finally been found out. Yeah, first of all, you're so cute for that red, red adorableness. (laughs) So cute, Sarah. (laughs) Yeah, so instead of packing, Matilda actually runs back, physically runs back to Miss Honey's house, asking if she could move in if her parents would let her. So as soon as Miss Honey says yes, quote, the next moment, the two of them were running down the drive together and then out onto the road. And Matilda was ahead, pulling Miss Honey after her by the wrist. And it was a wild and wonderful dash that they made along the country lane and through the village to the house where Matilda's parents lived. And I'm just like, I mean, sign this kid up for a freaking half marathon. She's just like sprinting back and forth. Go, Matilda, go. If you know any six-year-old who can outrun any adult, I would really like to meet them, by the way. Uh, unless Miss Honey is just just like so incredibly terrible at running. I don't know. Well, you could like snap Miss Honey in half. Well, apparently, right. <laughs> Very true. And you've got like no muscle mass. <laughs> And again, this goes to my, like, she she is magical, right? Like, we learn from Rowling. When magical kids are feeling the pressure, some cray-cray stuff happens. So it's no wonder that Matilda's pulling a bolt lightning in, like, the most important moment of her life. You're, like, yeah, apparating, like, outside the world. Household. Yes. She's 100% dash from The Incredibles. She's yeah, just right. running. And this is maybe one of my favorite quotes of all all time because to me this is like young matilda way too young to be doing this but taking control of her life in her own hands and like again being a little bit contrarian and because i want to feel better about this abandonment issue that i have i'm going to give a teensy tiny weensy eensy bit of small credit to matilda's mom because she ensures that there's too much luggage in the car to apparently allow her teensy tiny little daughter Matilda to squeeze in telling her husband Harry who tinfoil theory may not be Matilda's biological father quote come on Harry we don't have to let her go if that's what she wants it'll be one less to look after which again Harry doesn't want to look after anybody but himself and maybe his son uh, who he's maybe grooming for family business. Right. So Harry quickly agrees to this, to the delight of Matilda and Miss Honey. And so people are going to have completely different personal reactions to how this ends, depending upon their own family situation, whether or not they're just using this book as escapism, et cetera, et cetera. To me personally, I find this to be one of the best motherly moves that an absent-minded mother who did not necessarily want to be a mother could take. I wish it wasn't the situation, but if Matilda is going to be entrusted with anyone, I want it to be to the person who has shown up since day one of having Matilda enter into her life, like knocking on the Wormwood's 
door saying, hey, I care about how your kid is raised and being like the source of security for their daughter. So like, I'm remiss that it happened, but I'm going to see the silver lining in it. No, I mean, I think everybody can agree that Miss Honey is a better parent to Matilda Mm -hmm. and is like a great foster parent. But like, it obviously is really sad that her parents would just, you know, leave her on the side of the road like that. And and Sarah, to your point, so the the quote before Matilda's mom says, you know, it'll be one less to look one less to look after. She's pushing a suitcase into the back seat. So like you were saying, that doesn't leave any room for Matilda. So it's like a done deal. Basically, she doesn't even have to really ask her husband at that point. It's just done. Right. Yep. Um, but <clears throat> but I mean, yeah, it's it's sad. And really, in, in, in some respects, it might also have been. Um, in her own interests, right, and in the family's interests, because yep. this is a family that's going on the lam. They're they're taking whatever they can and fleeing, and they know that Matilda's got her own way of she's she's strong willed. She's got her own way of thinking about things and doing things, and frankly, moving things with her mind, right. So on the road, she might not she might be a bit of a liability to them getting caught. So why not let her stay while they do what they're going to do? So, yep. And so to parallel for for me personally, and maybe you two share this, it kind of reminds me of the Dursleys leaving Harry behind in book six, like much to Duddykins' confusion that Harry wouldn't be coming with them into hiding. Will, can you take away this quote before we inevitably have to lighten the mood back up again? Mm -hmm. Sure. So the Wormwoods are now in the car and... Quote, Matilda leapt into Miss Honey's arms and hugged her, and Miss Honey hugged her back. And then the mother and father and brother were inside the car, and the car was pulling away with a tire screaming. The brother gave a wave through the rear window, but the other two didn't even look back. Miss Honey was still tugging the tiny girl in her arms, and neither of them said a word as they stood there watching the big black car tearing around the corner at the end of the road and disappearing forever into the distance. And like, I know I want to know more. Like, right now I just feel like this empty longing of like okay now what (laughs) how about you two i mean just watch the movie they're rollerblading right 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 right. that's that's what they're doing if anyone needs to feel better flo's got the answer you 100 i got it i got the movie (laughs) but sarah you're 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 picking up on like why you know we, we we talked earlier about changes movies make to books right and if the movie had just ended like this it wouldn't be as satisfying Right. So yeah. you, you do need some something more and and you do, do need to lighten it a bit so that it's not just a mother deciding on the spur of the moment to say, OK, but, you know, I abandon you and, and, and just leave. That's really a little too much to put in film. And so what you're picking up on is probably a lot of what the, the screenwriters and Danny DeVito probably picked up on when they were making the movie, too. And I think that's a great way for us to transition into one of the ways that Doll and the book publishers ensured that Doll's work was a little bit lighter and brighter than perhaps the words themselves alone would have been. So, Will, why don't you take us on our last Matilda detailed dorky dive into artist Quentin Blake for us? Yeah, absolutely. And we haven't talked much about Blake before, uh, the Blake illustrations to Roald Dahl's books, but they, they're they really in a lot of them. They're not in 
I, I think he actually did some eventually, but the original ones from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator, for example, were somebody else. But okay. Quentin Blake and Roald Dahl had a partnership where Blake was illustrating Dahl's books for well over two decades, starting in the late 70s. And it's really cool because we, we just associate um, those illustrations with his books now. Mm-hmm. And it's it's also really cool because Blake's and Dahl's kind of style, there was a back and forth. Dahl didn't do too many drafts of his books, but Blake would, for example, get uh, a first draft of Matilda and Blake would do some illustrations. For example, he illustrated Miss Trunchbull and Miss Phelps and sent them back to Dahl. And I'm sure that if you go back, you can see where Dahl might have made some changes uh, to his mm. books based on those illustrations. And and Quentin Blake's artwork is is quirky. It's whimsical. Um, it really fits kind of the fairy tale nature of of Matilda, especially, but also books like the BFG and and Dahl's other books. Um, so the witches, the witches, exactly. The witches is, I mean, the the, the what Quentin Blake manages to do with his illustrations in the witches is like incredible because they're it's really creepy actually. Really, <laughs> A lot really of creepy. Stays with you. <laughs> Um, which is amazing, um, but at the same time, pretty also pretty creepy. Um, yeah. And and I always like it, like we talked about earlier about when in in Matilda, which is one of Dahl's later books, uh, the the illustrations are just kind of seamlessly part of the book, right? They're they're sprinkled through the pages. They actually mm-hmm. become part of the narrative in the Third Miracle when the the chalkboard, mm-hmm. the words actually appear on the chalkboard, and it's Quentin Blake's text that that shows that third miracle. And so they, they have this great partnership. I think they're, and you see this in literature in, in a lot of modern literature where you, you associate an artist with, uh, with an author. The other good example that I really like are, is um, John Tenniel who illustrated um, a lot of the Alice in Wonderland stuff. Right. Um, mm. And so Blake's our, our association between Blake and Roald Dahl continues to this day in 2018, which was, uh, the 30th anniversary of Matilda, Blake drew several illustrations of Matilda at 30 and what he thought she would be doing at Aww. 30, which is pretty cool. Um, and you can find the um, the illustrations online if you look for it. She's portrayed as a special effects director, an astrophysics professor, a poet, um, a reader of books and some other stuff. And I think you can even buy copies of Matilda now with those illustrations on the cover. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, cool. I mean, I can tell you what she's doing at 30. She's going back to Wagadu to speak at their commencement. There you go. <laughs> yes, she is. That's right. That's right. And so I think that's a great place for us to kind of close out our closing segment, as always, our thoughts to think on. And so I would say, dear listeners, for you folks, We've got some new things in the work for what comes next. We're going to give our parents, Flo and Will, a little (laughs) bit of a breather as new stuff comes up, but they're still going to be working on some stuff in the background. So this is a great opportunity for you to send in books or theories that you would love to hear us cover because we're going to be starting to work mm-hmm. on those sort of things as Colleen and I likely blast off into another aspect of a galaxy far, far away. So I guess, you know, with this being a longer episode, I would love to hear your thoughts, Flo and Will. 
if you had any kind of what was your experience working on Matilda like for you? And if there's anything else you'd like the readers to think on before we get to virtually see them again. Something that was really important for me working on this project with you two was taking a look at a text that I have read a billion times. I read it every single year to the little ones and just taking a different look at it, taking a more adult look into it. Usually a lot of my life revolves around making things palatable for six-year-olds. And so it was really special to get to take this quote unquote children's book and just really like make it all grown up and make it super fun and special. And so I'm just really thankful for this opportunity to work with you two. And thank you for bringing me on because it was really, really fun. (laughs) And I'm sure I'll be seeing you guys again soon. And BGS listeners, I'm sure you'll be hearing my uh, my laugh mm-hmm. very soon. <laughs> yes, it is literally medicine. It is. It is. And that's, I mean, and that's my like takeaway too, right? Is that I, I totally agree with everything you said, Flo, about how this, how reading this text as part of this really gives us new kind of cool insights. But also what's really important to me about reading Matilda with other people is that, I mean, especially right now, where where we're all kind of isolated and, and, and disconnected is that this podcast has been a way for me to stay stay tethered to some people I really care about. And it's... <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> we're all okay. But yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it reminds me of the, the connections that we all share. And it's really important. Without getting too emotional, because like I haven't written it out because I was like, probably if you write it out, you won't even be able to say it. So like amorphously, I'll say I very much resonate with a lot of what Matilda goes through or went through when it came to making friends, trying to get my brain engaged how I needed to be, find what I want from my teachers and my educators. And frankly, and most importantly, finally, 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 having people along with me for the ride because like that's it's the it's one of the most understated messages of Matilda because it ends like with Matilda and Miss Honey but at the end of the day one of the key things that helps Matilda find and grow her personal power that the movie lets her keep is companionship amongst friends who know something bad is happening, but something good must still happen along the way. And so like BGS was a dream that I had so long ago that I knew that I wanted to do, but it's dangerous to go it alone. And it has been wonderful starting and hopefully never, ever, ever finishing that journey with you all. And so, you know, folks, until we explore another book together, which is probably when we're next going to see Flo and Will, but like literally send us some of your favorite Matilda and Beyond moments, quotes, questions, and answers on Instagram, Bohemian Geek Studies, on Twitter at Geek Studies. And like, really, we miss you. It gives us energy to hear from you. It gives us things to really geek out about to hear from you. So use this time to remember the importance and the magic of human connectivity. 
anything else, folks? Because I'm going to let you guys each take <laughs> the closing line that I usually close out for like, oh, what an honor. It's in the wand. It ain't mine this time. Um, All right. Which one do you want, Will? <laughs> you go first. All right. So until next time, wands up. And keep those pages turning. <laughs> wow! <laughs> That's a wrap, baby. That's a wrap. <laughs> that was good. That was really good.